Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be at uh, tonight. We've been talking the last several weeks about being on offense, and especially offense as a church. And for the last several weeks, we've talked about different passages and, and asking the question, well, how do we get on offense? Why do we need offense? Um, how do we know which team's on offense, which team's on defense? What is the game plan when it comes to being on offense? And the thing that I've been trying to drive to is just to remind us that when it comes to the life of the church, especially when it comes to your personal, spiritual, faithful walk with God, um, you are sometimes... Sometimes living by faith on offense and sometimes you're living on faith on defense. And sometimes it can go back and forth. You can have spiritual highs, you can have spiritual lows. And even when it comes to the life of the church, we can go through seasons where it seems like the church is just playing defense. We're just trying to make it through. And there's other seasons of life that it feels like the church is on offense. We're growing, we're advancing, we're moving forward. Things are exciting, things are being done. And so how do we stay on offense? So that's what I want to do tonight. I want to just take a couple of verses out of Hebrews chapter 12. We could take, spend a whole lot more time working all the way down through verse 17. But for the sake of time, we're not going to do that. We might come back to that in the weeks later on. But I just want to encourage you from God's Word to stay on offense. Because once you get on offense... The best thing to do is to stay on offense. And I think everybody would rather be on offense than rather on defense. But sometimes we don't understand or we fail to understand that we can often see our, our walk with Christ like a job. Think about a job. Sometimes um, you get in your work and you feel strained with the pace. You feel strained with the responsibilities. There'll be people that say, I need time off. I need time away. So you get your weekends. You get your vacations because it just seems like work can be so overbearing on you that you become burdened and you become tired and you just need a break. And sometimes we can apply those same metrics with our service to God. We think, well, you know what, God, I'm going to come to church on Sunday, but then Monday I need a little break, and then I'll come back and serve you on Tuesday. Or we start to think that I'm going to serve X amount of time, but then someone else can serve that amount of time. We start to think that, hey, we are going to serve in this ministry, but not in that ministry. We check in, we check out, we take time off, and sometimes we think of it as, well, my service to the church is confined to I'm going to serve in these two ministries, and someone else can serve in the other. And I'm not trying to say that you have to be everywhere at every time, every place and every moment but who gave us the idea or the paradigm that this is the minimum that's required and no more or what gave us the idea that we're only on call or checked into ministry on Mondays and Wednesdays? I mean, what gave us the idea that we get to then decide when we're going to show up or if we're going to show up? So we've got a lot of people in the church today. Donna said there were 72 this morning and Sunday morning in our, in our Sunday morning worship. Out of those 72, statistically speaking, less than 10% are engaged in the regular ministry of the church. So less than 10 people, which we know right now it's more than that, but statistically speaking, you're looking at a, a larger congregation. I mean, they say less than 10% do 80% of the work. And so you have a congregation of people, and the majority of them are just there for Sunday morning, just there for Sunday school, maybe come on Sunday night, maybe come on Wednesday, but that's it. And you think, well, where in the world did we get this idea that that was what faithful Christianity looks like? 
And how do we confront them, as we talked about earlier? How do we speak into their lives? Or maybe even for ourselves personally, how do we stay on offense? How do we keep moving forward? Well, the writer here in Hebrews, which some people think that it was Paul. Some people think that it was Luke. Some people think that it was a sermon that Paul preached that Luke then recorded. So you have people all over the spectrum on who is actually the author of Hebrews. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. God does. Whoever penned Hebrews knows. But maybe we don't need to know because we just have it for us for our edification, for our instruction. And so here in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews gives us, I'm just going to give us for the sake of time, two different keys, two different principles for staying on offense. So how do we stay on offense as a church? How do you or I stay on offense in our daily lives? Well, notice, we're just going to take it out of verse 1 and out of verse 2. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The first key, the first principle that I think the writer here gives us of how we stay on offense is that we don't stop. You don't stop. Now I realize in this world today, sometimes it's easy for you or I to think, well, the you that we are the first one. We're the only one. We're the last one. No one else is going through what I'm going through. No one else has dealt with what I am dealing through. No one else has tried to balance and struggle what I am trying to balance and struggle with. Sometimes Satan has a really good job of getting you and I to have this pity party thinking that we are the only people. I remember taking 15 hours in seminary Driving back and forth down to Fort Worth every single Monday, sitting in lecture all day Monday long. I leave the house at 4.30. I would get home usually about 11.30 at night, take my lecture. I was working 40 to 60 hours in the electrical side. I was also serving at the church. And there were days that I started to whine and complain and go, this is just too much. No one else is having to do this. And then I'd start talking to some of these other preachers that said, so? What's the big deal? So you're going to school, and you're working, and you're serving as a pastor. We did the same thing. And we're not sitting here whining about it. I mean, there's this attitude that they're reminding me, and God used it as a timely reminder to kind of give me a little smack around to say, Spence, you're not the first, you're not the only, and you're not going to be the last. And sometimes in our Christian faith, you and I can start to think, well, we are the only people that are going through what we're going through. But the writer in Hebrews reminds them that we in our faith today are simply just a part of a lineage. In fact, in chapter 11, you see there's this whole, the, the, the whole of faith is some people talk about it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying by faith this person did this. By faith this person did that. And they start bringing all these examples of those that have come before us and their faithfulness to God even in the face of opposition, even in the face of discouragement, even in the face of reasons to stop. He said, therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. He's reminding us that we are not alone. We are not left without examples. We're not left without those that have shown faithfulness and shown us that things are possible. He is saying you're not the first so don't stop. And sometimes we stop. Sometimes we just get bogged down. We get discouraged. We get frustrated. And we stop. We stop reading our Bible. We stop praying to God. We start stop going to the fellowship of the believers. We stop 
thinking about spiritual things. We stop listening to those uh, sermons on the radio. We stop being with those friends. We just simply stop growing in our faith. And so the writer in Hebrews says, if you want to stay on offense, don't stop. Why don't we stop? Because we're not the first, we're not the last, and we're not the only. Another reason, another way that we don't stop is that we recognize the things that slow us down. If you look back there in verse 1, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now that weight there in the Hebrew is talking about a what some scholars would say is an impediment. It's an object. It's a, a something that would hold us back. Whenever I was younger, they had the, the uh, bean or the, the sandbags that you would put around your weight or your ankles and you would strap those on, those Velcro things, and you would carry, you know, you had five pounds on each ankle and you'd walk around all day or they want you to run, but we're not doing that. And so they, they would want you to move around, but the idea is you would spend a certain amount of time with them and then you would take them off and boy, you just felt so much lighter, okay? So it's some type of burden that is holding you down. And he is saying, you will have those same things in life. You're going to have weights that are seeking, that are there from Satan or there by you that are seeking to hold you back, to slow you down, and to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. Sometimes those weights become, our, 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 we, we identify them as responsibilities or obligations. Sometimes they can be a commitment or a possession. It can sometimes be a debt or a hobby or a desire. And he says, you've got to understand that there are weights that are in your life today that are not there to push you in your service to the kingdom of God. They're there to slow you down from your service to the kingdom of God. Sometimes people skip out of church so they can go to work, so they can buy something that's going to keep them out of church in the future. And you think, what in the world are you doing? You're, you, you're believing that you've got to go to work so that you can make this money, so that you can buy that possession. And none of that is going to put you closer to God. It's only going to keep you away from God. And I have been there myself. It's not one of those things that I'm saying, well, but those kind of... I have been there where you spend so much time and sacrifice getting something that only is a distraction from your service to God. So he says there in verse 1, let us lay aside every weight. And then he talks about lay aside the sin. He says, put the sin away. And the sin which clings so closely. The writer in Hebrews understood that sin, unconfessed, unrepented, unaddressed sin in our lives, it paralyzes us. Because sin takes root and I can't talk to you about sin because I'm guilty of sin. Or I do something in front of you and you see it. Well, I can't confront you because you'll say, yeah, but what did you do? Sin paralyzes. It, 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 it becomes one of those things that we just, we become immobile. It also desensitizes us. The more we sin, the more we are around sin, the less we are, are uh, exposed with the sin. Sometimes that sin has a way of causing those calluses in our lives. And the next thing you know, we're desensitized. So people, especially, and this is, this is true when it comes to even cursing or foul language. You're around it often enough and you just stop even realizing it. You stop even noticing it. There was a season of life that Jaylene and I had uh, this television, you know, the satellite television. And then we went and said, uh, no, you know, we're not, we're done with that. We're going to go just to streaming, which is the Netflix, Amazon Prime, something like that. But when you go to streaming, you don't have all the commercials as much mixed in. And so we went for like four or five years without having what we consider to be a traditional television type setting. And then I think we were gone on a trip someplace. We're in a motel room. I turned on the television that had the advertisements and I was appalled. I was appalled with the vulgarity. I was appalled with the profanity. I was appalled with the, I'm 
amount of flesh that is shown and the subject matters. And I'm appalled and I'm thinking, and this is on public, I mean, this is on readily accessible television. We're not talking about what comes on at 2.30 in the morning. (laughs) We're we're not talking about the stuff that's a pay-per-view. We're not talking about the stuff that you have to have a code for. We're not even talking about the stuff up in the 800 range of your channel lineup. We're talking about the stuff that's coming on your normal programming. But it had been so long since we had seen that, and now I'm seeing it for the first time in a long time, and it's almost like I was seeing things that most likely if I had never stopped... I wouldn't have noticed. Because sin desensitizes us and then sin even cauterizes us. The idea that sin has a way of cutting off the, that, uh, that uh, uh, tenderness, cutting off that compassion, cutting off, cutting off that, 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 uh, that, that holiness in connection with God. Sin does that. So the writer in Hebrews says, says well, don't stop. You're not the first one. You're not the only one. You're not going to be the last one. Know that there are things in your life that are currently there trying to slow you down. And then the last part to that is he said, run the race you're in. If you look at the last part of verse 1, he says so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice the language that he's using here. He says, run the race. Now, I don't run anywhere anymore. I used to have to, and I might have to again at some point if the situation calls for it, but this whole idea of running is beyond me. It's something that I do not understand. I would, lo- I, w- I would be happy if somebody could put a little sprinkle dust on me where I could run and not... <laughs> I would be happy. I'd run all day long. I'd be like Forrest Gump, and I'd just run across the U.S. But the problem is when I start running, I start having allergic reaction. I start getting sweat beads, I start getting a labored breath, I start getting aches and pains, and I start having depressing thoughts about, why are you doing this? I think it's an allergic reaction. I think I'm actually going into some type of a low-grade shock. But I start having all those, they don't happen unless I start running, but I'm having all of these things that come upon me, and I'm thinking for my health and for my safety, I should stop. But, when it comes to our spiritual life, we have people today that think, I'm just going to walk this thing. I'm just going to jog this thing. I'm just going to trot this thing. Or I'm just going to ease into it slowly. I'm just going to begin to explore. I'll just show up on a Sunday morning for the next two months. And then I may show up for a Sunday school every once in a while. And then I may just show up and I may tune in via Facebook for another thing. Or I may do something else. And the writer comes in and he says, this thing called a Christian life, this is not something that you meander, you mosey, you somble, whatever you want to call it. It's something that you're to run. You're to run the race that God has set before you. You may say, what is the difference? Well, one is running fast, running with purpose, running with mission, running saying, I'm not worried about being tired. I'm not worried about taking it easy. I want to run to Christ. It's one of those things that when we are called to run, we all know what it means to run. And he says, this is a race and you are not just trying to get a green ribbon of participation because we're running to the finish. We are running to the goal that God has put before us. And yet, He tells us, run the race that 
with endurance the race that is set before. So he does. He tells us, you don't need to look or compare yourself to the other runners. You don't need to look or compare yourself to the other races. Ron's race may be different than my race. Van's race might be different than David's race. We might all have a different race that God has put in front of us. And he says, instead of spending your days evaluating, critiquing, or discussing, or trying to say, well, you know what, I think I'm going to run on Tuesday because the weather will be better. Or, you know, I think I won't start running until I get a certain type of tennis shoe. Or, you know, I think that I'm going to wait until uh, I lose a few more pounds. He says, all of that stuff is designed to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. All that stuff is designed to just keep you inactive. To just make you stop. To say, well, you'll do it later. And as long as you'll do it later, you'll never run the race that God has called you to run. And so many times we look around and say, well, you know what? If I could have Denise's race, I would run her race. Well, God hasn't given me Denise's race. He's given me my race. So run your race. Don't stop. And yet we have too many Christians today that are in the church and outside the church that have stopped. They have stopped moving. They have stopped running. They have stopped moving towards the goal that God has given them. They have just simply said, I've got too much going on to do. And you know this writer in Hebrews, he doesn't take into account the fact that they had a job, that they had a family, that they had responsibilities, that they had bills, that they had other relationships, that they had their circumstances, that they had other opposition. He, he, he realizes all this stuff is going on. And yet he says, in spite of everything, run. Run the race that God is giving you. And yet... We wonder why we don't stay on offense when we've stopped moving forward. When we've stopped running. So he says, don't stop. And then notice verse 2. Here's the second key. The second way that we stay on offense is that we look up. We don't stop and we look up. Very clearly, verse 2, looking to Jesus. It's this idea that He wants to remind us that it doesn't matter about how smart you are. It doesn't matter about our education. It doesn't matter about your possessions. It doesn't matter about your material worth. It doesn't matter about how many people know you. It doesn't matter about how long you've been in a church. It doesn't matter about all the traditions that you know or that you don't know. It doesn't matter about how many people look at you. The problem is is that we have too many people that are more consumed with the opinion of everybody else and and not concerned with the opinion of Christ. And He says, so instead of coming to church to be seen or for other people to like you or for you to look around and say, well look, everybody I want, pe- I want people to look at me. He says we should be living a life that we are constantly looking up. That's why he says, verse 2 looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He reminds us how do you not stop? How do you stay on offense? You keep looking up. You don't just keep looking around at what people think or gauging the winds of popular opinion or popular fads. You're not gauging what the world is doing and where the world is heading. You're looking to Christ because you and I are never alone. We're never without direction. As long as Jesus Christ is in our life, He is the ultimate pace setter for us. It hasn't been that long ago, I think, maybe in the last year, year and a half, there was a new record set in the marathon. I, I 
can't imagine walking 26.2 miles in a day. I can't, much less running 26.2 miles. But there was a new world record that was set. And as soon as the world record was announced, there was all kinds of debate on whether it was truly a world record or not. And part of the, part of the rub was because they had used pace setters during the race. So Ron says, I am going to set a new world record in the marathon. And so we say, well, how is the best way for Ron to do that? So all of us come together and we say that we're all going to sign up for a mile or two miles. And as Ron is running, Kale is going to run up beside him and kind of set the pace. And he's going to run maybe for 100 yards, maybe. <laughs> but he's going to run a section. And then Mark's going to run a section. And then Donna is going to run a section. And then Steve's going to run a section. And then Pam's going to run a section. And the idea was you would bring these people in. They'd be fresh. They'd be rested. And they could run almost sprint-like for a mile or two. They would peel off. Here would come the next fresh reserve. And as Ron is is running, all these people are coming beside him, encouraging him, trying to run faster, if that makes sense. So he had all these pace setters, and so there was people that were debating on whether that was truly a record or not, because in this particular race, they had all of these pace setters that had come, and they said, well, that's not a normal race. In a normal marathon race, you don't have 20 people at different times that are running beside you trying to get you to run faster. And so they had disputed that, saying that that was not a legitimate world record. I am thinking to myself, I don't care whether there was 30 people or 100 people. If I tried to set a world record, I would need an ambulance. So it's not like one of those things that uh, I'm not going to dispute it. Just the fact that he ran it in a day is an amazing feat for me. But it's this idea that a lot of times when it comes to these marathons or other things, you'll use pace setters. And what the writer here in Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is our ultimate pace setter. This idea that you and I think, well, how am I supposed to be faithful? How am I supposed to live? How do I follow? How do I obey? How do I endure what I'm facing? How do I overcome what I'm struggling with? How do I get guidance? How do I get directions? How do I get understanding? How do I get wisdom? And he says, look to Jesus. Who is who is better for us to gaze upon for help in this daily life besides Jesus? Because he talks about it in verse 2. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the Father. He is saying he's a model for our faith. He was the provider of our forgiveness. He is the ultimate example of sacrifice and obedience. And at this very moment, he is at the right hand of God. There is no one that is closer to God Almighty at this very moment than Jesus Christ. Nobody. And you and I have the opportunity to look to that example, to look to our Savior for help and hope in our daily lives. The danger is, is that so many times we think we need someone else to look at. So we look to the popular methodologies and the popular programs. We look to the authors and the books and the self-helps. We look for others to give us input or ideas on what we should do or what we shouldn't do. Or even more dangerous, we start to compare and copy what other people are doing. Well, I'm more faithful than Mark, so I'm good. Well, I read my Bible more than Mo does, so I'm good. Or you know what? Whatever Mo's doing, I like what he's doing because I can see what it does in his life, so I'm just going to copy what he's doing because if it works for him, it's going to work for me. And we don't understand that... Sometimes what we portray on the outside is not true on the inside. 
And it's not a matter of me trying to copy what Mo is doing. It's me wanting to do what God wants me to be doing. And it's this idea that if I stop looking up, then I start looking at everyone else. And God has not called me to mimic everyone else. He has called me to look to Christ. To look to Christ and to follow after Christ. And yet we have people all throughout this world that think, well, I don't have to look to Him. The reality though is, is even when you and I aren't looking at Him, He's watching us. So He sees. He sees the things that we're doing. He sees the things that we're not doing. He knows the race that we're running or we're not running. And He says, why have you stopped looking at me. You think back to the Bible story about Peter walking on the water. And when Peter cries out to Christ and Christ says, come, Scripture tells us that Peter is walking out to Christ and as he's walking out to Christ, he's got his eyes on Jesus and he's walking on water. And then as the passage goes on, it says that Peter then began to notice the waves and the wind and the environment around him and he began to sink. He didn't start to sink until he took his eyes off of Jesus. We have too many churches today, and we have too many people in the church today that they've taken their eyes off of Jesus and they wonder why we're sinking. They wonder why we are not advancing. They wonder why we're not on offense. They wonder why we are living a life of defense. Because they have taken their eyes off of Jesus. And when they take their eyes off of Jesus, they start to look at the world and they start to become fearful of the world around it. Because they've taken their eyes off of who they're supposed to have their eyes upon. Maybe we try to put it this way. 18, 19 years old. I went to work for Paul Whitney. We were building transmission lines up there in Missouri. I'm scared of heights. I don't like heights. I don't do heights. We went to the top of the Seattle Observatory Space Needle, whatever it was. The Space Needle that used to be at Oklahoma City at the State Fair. You know, you get on that thing and you drive that thing around. Not interested. We were in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and there's a big enough observatory tower that you could ride up and go look around the, the area. Not interested. I just, I'm not the whole height. I'm not there. I'm not doing it. I get up there. We're doing transmission lines. Paul says, I want you 125 foot up on that pole. I don't want to be up there, but that's what the job allows. That's what the job requires. And so what I learned was, is when I would get up there, I wouldn't look down. (laughs) As we were ascending up to the top of that pole we're working, I wouldn't look down. I would just look up and see what we're working on. And then when we get there, my focus would be, and even today, even today, sometimes I have to do aerial work and I still feel uncomfortable. I still don't like it. But what do I do? I get up there and I focus on the work that I have and I'm not worried about how far it is down, how long it'll take me to get down if I was to fall or what all the other situations. I just get up there and I just focus on what I am doing. And yet, in my own Christian life, I have been guilty too many times of getting someplace and instead of focusing on what God has told me to do, I start looking around and looking for reasons to be fearful or looking for reasons to stop or looking for reasons to slow down or looking for reasons to quit. The church, we're not going to stay on offense if all we're doing is looking down instead of looking up. So let me give you two dangers. Two dangers that come to 
our faithfulness to run the race that God has given us. The first danger is that we begin to let it pile up. What do we begin to let pile up, Spence? We begin to let the things pile up. The weight, the sin, all of those things that keep us from running the race with endurance. We begin to let these things pile up. Uh, We live in a home that those dishes, they pile up and they pile up exponentially so quickly. And it's one of those things that if somebody doesn't stay on top of it or make sure that someone else stays on top of it, then those things will just continue to grow and they will build. And next thing you know, uh, the dishes become so overwhelming that you're like, I don't want to mess with it. I just want to go to bed. I just don't want to deal with it. And so it's one of those things that it starts to pile up. The same thing happens with dirty clothes. The same thing happens with emails. The same thing happens with bills. The same thing happens with grass in the yard. I mean, all these things, you know, will begin to pile up to the point that it feels like such a monumental task to overcome that you just think, I just don't want to mess with it. But you know, the greatest remedy to prevent that from happening is to not let it pile up. And there are things in our Christian line that Satan is putting there to try to be an impediment, to try to slow us down, to try us to get us to quit and to get off of offense. And the best thing that we can do is to not let it pile it up. As soon as God says that sin, don't do it, fine. I'm not going to try to negotiate. I'm not going to try to argue. I'm not going to try to barter. I'm not going to come back tomorrow. Hope you change your mind. I'm not going to do it, hoping that you'll forget about it. I'm just going to stop it. The first time he says, repent, do something about that. We need to say, I'm there. I'm done. You have it. I'm over. I'm sorry. I got my mind right, boss. Here we go. It's one of those things that we begin to just let this stuff pile up. And it piles up and it piles up and it piles up. Before you know it, it's a mountain. And now we feel like it's too great of a hill that we can't overcome it. If we don't let it pile up, then it doesn't become a weight or a hindrance for us running the race to begin with. And yet, we let it pile up. The second danger that we come to is we start looking down. We start looking down and we start looking down at what everybody else is doing or what everybody else is thinking or what is the popular opinions that are out there or what is the fads that are out there or what what is the trendiness out there or what is the thing that we need to do to appeal to the people around us. And we can start looking down instead of looking up. We can start looking down and looking around and being more worried about what people think around us than what God thinks above us. We can start looking down and as long as we're looking down, we're not playing offense because we've stopped looking up and we've stopped running the race that God has given us. And we need to ask ourselves from time to time, whose glory are we living for? Am I living for man's glory? Am I living for denominational glory? Am I living for a congregational glory? Or am I living for the glory of God? You've been to enough funerals. You've seen enough death happen. When that time comes, what do people say about them? How do people remember? How are they thought of? So many times I've been to those funerals and the family, they don't care about the size of his bass boat. They don't care about how much information he knew about sports. They want to know, was he saved or was he not saved? Because when that time comes, the only thing that's really going to matter is, is what race were you running? And did you get to the goal that God had given you? So how do we stay on offense? We don't stop and we look up. And I hope and my prayer for us as a church is that we will constantly be looking for ways to stay on offense and constantly guarding our hearts and our lives from being distracted and getting us in a defensive posture. Because if we're not on offense, we're not going to be advancing the kingdom of God.